You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Thanks for tuning in to the 205th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As promised, with this show, for the first time in quite a while, we're going to head back out to the Western Theater of the War and see what's been happening out there. Yeah, it was kind of amazing to us when we realized this, but we were last out in the Western Theater in episode number 125 when we were finishing up the Shiloh story arc, and that was back in September 2015. So that's just shy of two years ago, since as we record this show this weekend, it's August 2017. Um, but after we wrapped up Shiloh, we shifted our focus to the Eastern Theater and covered the Peninsula and Jackson's Valley campaign. And the Seven Days and then Second Manassas. And then we jumped right into the Antietam story arc. And, well, two years have passed here in real life. So, yes, it's definitely time we head back out west especially since late 1862, was a critical period for the armies fighting in the Western Theater. The Confederates had abandoned Kentucky and much of Tennessee earlier in the year, and by the summer had given up Corinth, a valuable railroad junction in northeastern Mississippi. The three major campaigns that we'll be discussing in upcoming episodes represent desperate rebel efforts to reverse the the strategic course of the war in the West. Those Confederate efforts to regain the strategic initiative in the West involved a mighty struggle for control of the Upper South, that is, Tennessee and Kentucky, with that region's sizable population, rich agricultural resources, and strategic importance. Control of this region would put rebel armies on the North's doorstep, while loss of it would place Federal troops on the verge of invading the Deep South. The events of late 1862, therefore, represented a critical phase of the Western War. As we'll see, though, by the end of 1862, the rebels had lost more than they gained. Confederate General Braxton Bragg's invasion of Kentucky failed to bring the Bluegrass State under Confederate control, but saved Chattanooga and much of Middle Tennessee. That action, however, set the stage for Union General William Rosecrans' Stone River campaign, which placed a bit more of the Upper South under federal control. And Confederate General Earl Van Dorn not only failed in his attempt to retake Corinth, Mississippi, but he also inadvertently prepared the way for a major Union offensive against Vicksburg. 
And so, as was true of Robert E. Lee's crossing of the Potomac into Maryland, which took place back east in this same time period, the Confederate movements in the West in the summer and fall of 1862 seemed full of marvelous potential, but, like Lee's Maryland campaign, in the end, they also bore relatively little strategic fruit, since by the time these campaigns in the East and West concluded, the rebel armies would again be on the defensive. As y'all recall, the first half of 1862 was a disaster for the Confederates in the West. Beginning with Forts Henry and Donelson in February, the rebels suffered one defeat after another. At Shiloh, the Confederates attempted to halt the seemingly unstoppable Federal advance southward, and Albert Sidney Johnston did manage to surprise Ulysses S. Grant at Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River on April 6th, but in the fierce and bloody fighting that day, Johnston was killed and the Federals managed to rally and hang on. That night, Grant's battered force was reinforced by the timely arrival of fresh Union troops led by Don Carlos Buell. The next day, after more hard fighting, the resurgent Federals drove the Confederates away. Now commanded by PGT Beauregard, the defeated rebel army retreated back to Corinth. Grant and Buell wouldn't be given the opportunity to continue the advance toward Corinth on their own, though, since their superior, Department Commander Henry Halleck, left his headquarters in St. Louis to come and take personal command in the field. Once Halleck had summoned John Pope, fresh from his victory at Island No. 10, to join Grant and Buell, Old Brains had more than 100,000 men under his command. Halleck, however, began an overly cautious and painfully slow advance from Pittsburgh Landing toward Corinth. He fortified his camps each night to avoid being caught by surprise by a Confederate attack. But Beauregard, with only 55,000 men, could not risk a major assault unless Halleck became careless and gave him an opportunity to strike. Halleck, though, didn't give his opponent such a chance. As a result, the battle for Corinth, such as it was, involved several small clashes but no significant fighting. On May 30th, Beauregard successfully evacuated the town with his army intact. The fall of Corinth was hailed by northern newspapers as a great triumph, even though Halleck, despite possessing every advantage, had failed to do any real damage to the Confederate army defending the place. Despite that, the Union offensive that captured Corinth was the culmination of an immense gain of territory. All of Kentucky had been cleared of Confederate troops, and all of western and central Tennessee was either in Union hands or vulnerable to Federal advances. Nashville on the Cumberland River was the first Confederate state capital to fall to Union troops. Some key defensive positions along the Mississippi, including Island Number no. 10 and Fort Pillow, had fallen to the Federals rather easily, and that meant that the entire length of the Mississippi River through the Upper South was now cleared of Rebel forces. The important river port of Memphis was under federal control after the Battle of the Rams. That left Port Hudson and Vicksburg as the only strong point still held by Confederate forces on the long stretch of river between Memphis and New Orleans. Farther west, other Federal forces also enjoyed success. 
a small Union army commanded by Samuel Curtis, had advanced into northwest Arkansas and at Pea Ridge defeated a Confederate force led by Earl Van Dorn and Sterling Price. Still farther west, a Confederate attempt to invade the territory of New Mexico was defeated by a combination of logistical problems and the stiff resistance of Union forces in that distant region. Even in Virginia, where the opposing forces sparred and maneuvered over much shorter distances, Federal armies were on the move. The nation's attention was focused on the Army of the Potomac, as its commander, George McClellan, landed his men on the Virginia Peninsula and began a ponderous advance on Richmond. Despite spending the entire month of April in front of Yorktown, Little Mac eventually was just a dozen miles from Richmond when, on May 31st and June 1st, the Confederates, led by Joseph E. Johnston, attacked at Seven Pines. The rebel assaults were repulsed, and Johnston was severely wounded. Jefferson Davis replaced him with Robert E. Lee. Lee's record up to that point in the Civil War had been uh, less than impressive, really. And so, with the Army of the Potomac still knocking at the gates of Richmond, there was every reason for the North to expect great things from that front as spring gave way to summer. But this impressive string of federal successes was in danger of unraveling. In the East, the reasons for this would revolve around McClellan's incompetence and Lee's audacity, while in the West, where the war was mainly a contest of far-flung offensives spanning huge expanses of territory, it would turn upon the overwhelming need for the Federals to consolidate the tremendous gains they had made up to that point. In the aftermath of his capture of Corinth, Halleck felt he had to disperse his army to key towns along the logistical network that supplied his army, which already was several hundred miles from its major supply depots to the north. We really can't stress enough that in the western theater of the war, logistical concerns were absolutely vital. The system of rivers and railroads that Grant and Buell had used to bring their armies so far had been a strategic advantage to the Union forces in the Upper South, but but that system of rivers and railroads didn't so conveniently extend into the Deep South. Below Corinth, only one rail line penetrated the vast expanses of territory in central Mississippi. And so new logistical concerns had to be considered by Halleck before a further federal push south of Corinth would be practicable. In other words, the Union Army in the West had reached the end of its rope. It had been relatively easy enough to operate in the Upper South because that region was adjacent to Northern Territory and was well suited to the movement of large armies and their supplies. It had a long-settled population and excellent system of turnpikes and wagon roads. Railroads also crossed the region, connecting major cities with the rest of the country. More importantly, the Tennessee, Cumberland, and Mississippi rivers flowed north to south, giving federal commanders an opportunity to drive deeply into the region and easily supply their armies. The Deep South posed far more difficult problems for Halleck and his subordinates than did the Upper South. Mississippi and Alabama extended some 400 miles north to south. These states had mostly been settled just in the three decades before the firing on Fort Sumter. 
Cotton was the key crop of the Deep South, and a traveler journeying through Mississippi and Alabama would have found the region dotted with large plantations separated by huge tracts of endless pine forests, with many small hardscrabble farms scattered across the land. Important cities were few and far between, and railroads failed to penetrate large areas of the region. And the river system didn't take up where the railroads left off. The rivers that penetrated the heart of Mississippi and Alabama flowed largely in the southern halves of the states and were small and shallow. The only exception is the Mississippi River itself, which flowed north to south, of course, but that only gave federal forces the opportunity to penetrate the deep south on a very narrow front. All in all, the landlocked interior of the region was a very poor place for maneuvering and feeding large numbers of troops. So the long and the short of it is that the Deep South was an inhospitable area for military operations. Federal forces could easily reclaim lost territory by dispersing in the Upper South to occupy important points that were connected by good roads and rail lines, but operations in the Deep South would have to be different. It would be impossible to spread out and permanently garrison towns, large and small, and in that way occupy considerable chunks of territory there. The federal armies simply didn't have the manpower or the time to do that, and besides, there were vast areas of the Deep South that had no strategic military importance anyway. Instead, the strategy for waging the war in the Deep South would be dictated by geography and logistics. Federal commanders would have to decide which areas were important enough to conquer and then prepare extensively to send armies into them. Penetrations of the Deep South would therefore be on very narrow, limited fronts, such as expeditions down the Mississippi River or along the rail line from Chattanooga to Atlanta. Unlike in the eastern theater of the war, where the campaigning never moved from the upper to the deep south, these operations in the west would test the federal logistical capabilities to the extreme, as the conflict here was primarily one of distances. Real progress or failure was most often measured by the shifting of forces over the map, and so the soldiers in the western armies would find that their part of the war was won as much by moving successfully over vast distances as by slugging it out with the enemy on the field of battle. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you 
to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. And so for all the reasons we just talked about, Halleck was forced to stop after capturing Corinth in late May. He refused to rush deeper into Mississippi in pursuit of Beauregard's army, which had withdrawn some 60 miles southward to Tupelo. The massive federal army wouldn't have been able to adequately supply itself with the single line of railroad that led into central Mississippi. If he moved south after Beauregard, Halleck realized he would never be able to feed his army, provide them with ammunition, send forward reinforcements, or evacuate wounded and sick men over that single rail line. Later in the war, such a feat would indeed be possible, but in the summer of 1862, the Union Army simply didn't have that capability. A lot of historians heap burning coals upon Halleck's head for his decisions following his capture of Corinth, but really, he had few good options. It pains us to admit that, since we're no fans of old brains, but it's the truth. Anyway, he decided to direct his attention toward the west and east, rather than south. He thought the need to consolidate Union gains seemed more important than setting off southward on an uncertain campaign in difficult territory. West of the Mississippi, Samuel Curtis's small Union army was in danger. After his victory at Pea Ridge, Curtis had begun to march across Arkansas as Van Dorn moved eastward to join up with Joseph E. Johnston and Beauregard. Van Dorn didn't arrive in time for the Battle of Shiloh, but linked up with Beauregard at Corinth. Meanwhile, back in Arkansas, Curtis was at the end of a precarious supply line of wagon trains that trundled over the rugged Ozark Mountains from Rolla, Missouri, more than 200 miles away. Despite his logistical problem, Curtis dallied at Batesville, Arkansas, hoping to move on and capture the state capital of Little Rock but he eventually decided to cut loose of his supply line and march over to Helena on the Mississippi River. Halleck tried to help him by sending a supply fleet up the White River. The fleet barely missed hooking up with Curtis's army, but after living off the land on his trek across Arkansas, Curtis, Curtis reached Helena in July, opening up the Federals' most advanced base of operations on the Mississippi River, there 60 miles south of Memphis. At any rate, when Halleck turned his attention eastward, he found that consolidating Union control of the Upper South would be far more difficult than aiding Curtis's small army. The Federals' concentration of manpower for the drive on Corinth had taken troops from huge areas of Kentucky and Tennessee, and the Confederates had also concentrated their troops for the Battle of Shiloh. So as a result, large areas of Tennessee weren't controlled by either army, and some parts of it were still held by comparatively small, isolated detachments. The Federals firmly held Nashville and most of Kentucky, but little else. 
A small division of about 8,000 Federals under Brigadier General Ormsby Mitchell from Buell's Army had gone off and penetrated into northern Alabama when Buell left Nashville to join Grant at Pittsburgh Landing. Mitchell made it to Huntsville, Alabama, a mountain town on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad that connected Corinth with Chattanooga. You don't hear the name Ormsby much anymore. No, no, you don't. Ormsby, leave the cat alone. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. Anyway, uh, Mitchell's small force was kind of out on a limb, living hand to mouth, as it was forced to rely on supplies shipped by wagon from Nashville and on whatever the men could forage from the Alabama countryside. Mitchell survived by aggressively patrolling the area to prevent the buildup of Confederate guerrillas, and also because the rebels were too preoccupied with trying to stop Grant and Buell in western Tennessee to pay much attention to Mitchell's division. Fortunately for Mitchell, the only sizable rebel force in the area was nearly as vulnerable as he was. Confederate Major General Edmund Kirby Smith commanded fewer than 10,000 men who were strung out across the width of eastern Tennessee, from Cumberland Gap over to Knoxville and down to Chattanooga. Kirby Smith was barely able to maintain his position. His vulnerability was clearly demonstrated in June, when a federal division of some 10,000 men under George Morgan captured Cumberland Gap without breaking a sweat. Possession of Cumberland Gap gave the Federals an avenue of advance into the heart of eastern Tennessee, including Knoxville, and their capture of Cumberland Gap that showed that the Federals were consolidating their positions all across the Upper South. As a result, Kirby Smith was in real danger of losing all of eastern Tennessee, including the vital railroad junction of Chattanooga. That mountain city was the logistical gateway to Georgia and other areas of the Deep South, offering a rail line that would supply any future federal invasion of the southeastern portion of the Confederacy. In addition, rail lines running east and west also ran through Chattanooga, connecting Virginia with the western Confederacy. Chattanooga, on the banks of the Tennessee River, with its railroad connections and imposing geography, was one of the true strategic points in the region. By mid-June 1862, Halleck was ready to move on Chattanooga and then invade Georgia. And that seems like a good place for us to end this episode. We'll pick up right here next time, though, with Halleck sending Don Carlos Buell eastward from Corinth with the Army of the Ohio to seize Chattanooga. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The New York Times Disunion, A History of the Civil War, edited by Ted Widmer. Between 2011 and 2015, the opinion section of the New York Times published Disunion, a series of hundreds of essays about different aspects of the Civil War. And some of you may remember that a previous collection of some of those essays in book form was an earlier recommendation here on the podcast. And while that collection had essays that went from Lincoln's election up to the Emancipation Proclamation, this book has selections that cover the entire war to Appomattox and beyond. So that's The New York Times Disunion, A History of the Civil War 
Edited by Ted Widmer. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And if you do head over to the website, you'll see that just yesterday we released the 57th members episode in which we looked at Abraham Lincoln's use of presidential war powers, including his issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation. A big thanks to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, John and Neil and Brian and George. Thanks, guys. And we also wanted to say thank you to Ryan B. for his donation to the podcast this past week. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks, as always, to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.